Welcome everyone to our once a month bonus edition of Developmenter, where we bring in a few guests to join me on the show and talk about topics relating to careers in tech, as well as answer your career questions. As a quick note, if you want your question answered by our panelists, please visit developmentor.com and select the Your Career Questions Answered link from the menu. And of course, we'll link that up in the show notes for today's episode. You're listening to the Developmentor Podcast, hosted by Grant Ingersoll. We have one goal on the show, to help you build a successful career in tech, no matter where you're from or where you're going. We do this by showcasing interesting people working across a variety of roles in tech and deep dive into their why. If you want to learn more, please visit our website at developmentor.com or follow us on Twitter at developmentor. Let's get started by welcoming our panelists. Our first guest joins us from Seattle, Washington. In fact, she was a guest on the show in episode 76 and has built a 10 plus year career in data science and analytics and is also the co-author of Build Your Career in Data Science. Please welcome to the show, Jacqueline Nolis. Jacqueline, great to have you here. How are you doing? Good. Thank you so much for inviting me. And I trust you are doing well in Seattle, despite all the smoke in the pandemic. Well, the smoke has switched to its more traditional cloudy weather, so I'm dealing with that. Yeah, it's almost rainy season there, for sure. And next up, also hailing from Seattle, Washington, is Gary Flake. Gary is the former CTO of Search and Data Science at Salesforce and is now an independent inventor, author, and advisor. Gary was also a guest on the show in episode 42 and 43. We had a two-part episode. Please welcome to the show, Gary Flake. It's great to be here. Yeah, Gary, and you're also in Seattle. I didn't know when I was planning out this panelist that I would have so much Seattle influence here. I'm going to have to look at my uh, map next time I bring people on. But thank you so much for joining me. It's my pleasure. I only wish that we could have done this, you know, something more like this in, in, in person since there's so many of us here. But given the pandemic and the uh, smoke issues here, I guess it's for the best. Yeah, I don't think it's worth breaking quarantine to record this uh, first panel here, but I appreciate you very much uh, making the journey over the interwebs, as they say. And then our fourth and final panelist here, Renee St. Louis, probably still wishes she was in Seattle because I know she lived there for a long period of time, especially as winter approaches in her current home of Minneapolis, Minnesota. Renee is a longtime product manager and the author of the Manager Mentor blog series here on Developmentor. She was also a guest of the show way back in episode two, and still to this day is my sister and willing to talk to me still. So it's fantastic to have you here, Renee. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Grant. I'm happy to be here. And I do wish I was in Seattle. My heart is in Seattle, even though I live in Minneapolis. And I still have not forgiven you for uh, converting to be a Seahawks fan instead of a Vikings fan. So, you know, we'll have to take that up at the next family reunion. I am a 12 through and through. 
And we'll explain maybe what that means for our listeners out there who don't care about sports ball or the Seahawks. But here we go then. So for our listeners, this is a brand new format for all of us here. But this is the way this is going to work for those turning in. We've brought in Jacqueline, Gary, and Renee together to talk about a topic related to working in tech. Our goal here is to help you perhaps take away a nugget that you can use in your career. I'm your host, Grant Ingersoll, and I'm going to act as the moderator, and I'm going to pepper these fine folks with questions that I hope help you, our dear listeners, make their way in this lovely career field that we call technology. Our topic to kick all of this off is going to be compensation, better known as money. For most of us, it's one of the main reasons we work. It's no doubt a complicated subject, and we, of course, can't cover all the issues, but we're going to try to hit on some of the keys, things like negotiating salaries, analyzing total comp, figuring out your quote-unquote worth, or at least figuring out if you're underpaid, and so much more. So let's get started. And Jacqueline, I want to kick things off with you, as I know you just recently switched jobs, and of course, I don't want you to divulge the details of that job switch, but you know, making a job change is often that point in your career where one focuses in on money. And of course, I also know you worked for a few years independently as a consultant. I'd love for you to start off with how have you approached negotiating salary throughout your career? I think like most people, I really struggled with this at the beginning because when it comes to negotiating salary, there's all these, you know, you got to be like firm and say like, well, I'm worth this much and you really got to be confident. And it's very much easier early on in your career to be like, well, I'll just take what they give me. And like, oh, I don't want to rock the boat because I'm just happy to have a job in the first place. And so it really took a lot of time in getting more senior to get more and more comfortable saying, hey, this is the minimum I can get paid for me to take this job. You know, like like having some sort of higher than they might initially offer amount of like, no, if you don't give me at least this much, that's like something I might walk away about. That said, I just started a new job. And it's interesting because this is one of the maybe the first time in my career with this new job. I won't say how much I'm making now, but I will say that I actually took a decrease in pay. You know, I switched from consulting back to industry. But if you're like working in tech and you go to a nonprofit, there are situations where you're going to have to take a lower salary. But then it's still kind of the same thing where you have to decide of like, well, I know I'm going to be making less than I currently make, but how much less is too much less? And and a lot of the logic they have around like, go look at what you're worth and use that. Well, it doesn't make sense if you know how much you're currently being paid and it might be a little bit more than what you're willing to take. And so, you know, I've really tried to do my best, but I would just say that um, my approach has been improvisational and constantly a struggle of trying to figure out exactly what I should be asking for. Well, and that fits very much. If, if I recall from our episode earlier, you do have an improv background. So I, I think maybe that makes sense. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. You just kind of say what you feel. Uh, I mean, that's probably not a good negotiating tactic. But I mean, I think there was a lot of points where I'm like, I don't really know what to do. I'm just going to follow my gut. You know, I guess it worked out for me. Well, and, you know, and Gary, that kind of reminds me, you know, in, in your career, I think, you know, you've worked for big company, you've worked for small company, you've been on your own, so on and so forth. How have you approached negotiating salaries? It's been an evolving process for me. And let me just preface it by saying, I'm so glad not to have to do that anymore, because I'm sort of pseudo retired or fun employed at this point. But I would say, in the early stage of my career, I approached it very much with nothing but ignorance. You know, would read up on what were the going rates. And, you know, I got a PhD in machine learning, computer science back in the early 90s. 
during a recession. And it was a time, if you can believe it, in the early 1990s where, you know, a fresh PhD with background in machine learning, I sent out over 200 applications for jobs and got two interviews and one offer. If you would think now, what is it like for, you know, someone with a background in machine learning? It's a completely different world. So in that context of being in that starving environment, it was, I, I took what I could get, basically. But later on, there were two things that I came to understand and appreciate better. One is know the difference between people and companies. And companies, in some sense, are going to come and go in your life. You're going to work for one company and another. But if your career is going well, you're going to bump into the same people within different companies over the course of decades. And so the sort of rapport and the reputation that you build out in that larger network of people can actually greatly influence what you end up doing from an earning perspective later on. So that is, I think, one of the most important key points that I would I would differentiate. The second thing that I would throw out there is that as you start working in technology, stock compensation and bonus compensation in addition to base salary becomes a bigger deal. And oftentimes you have to decide where you are on the risk reward continuum in terms of what you want to prioritize because any negotiation that you win for base salary is probably in some way going to be compensated with a loss on the negotiation for bonus or stock. And so depending on the nature of the company that you're working for and that you're negotiating with, how you make that trade-off is going to say a lot about where you are in your life and how you want to split that difference between risk and reward. Well, and, you know, Renee, that reminds me, you know, you've kind of had those questions in your career as well. I know you've worked for startups like, uh, I'm trying to remember, was it Kamoon and Purchase Pro? And then you've also worked for the big banks, et cetera. How have you, you know, approached these different factors of figuring out what's best for you salary wise? I did work for a couple of startups that went bust. So the negotiations on the stock didn't turn out so well for me because those companies died in the dot-com bust of the early 2000s. Um, So I've been a little bit more conservative. Being the main breadwinner of my family, I always took the, I want the big salary and the rest was just gravy to me. So that's what was, uh, has always been important to me when negotiating a salary. Yeah. It's so interesting. Just, you know, some of those early experiences you have. And of course I, I do have a later one of our, we'll, we'll give a little sneak peek for our listeners here. And the, the listener questions, we're going to, we're going to talk a little bit about when to jump ship. So Renee, I know when your company is dying, what to do, you know, cause that's all too pertinent for many folks these days, but we'll put a pin on that and come in. But Renee, I want to continue on with you. You know, what are some of the, you know, you mentioned you perhaps are biased towards the big salary. What are some, you know, especially in your manager role, what are some common mistakes you've either made or seen in your career when it comes to compensation? Sure. Well, I think uh, Jacqueline hit on it a little bit earlier. One is uh, knowing your worth. So it can be really hard knowing your worth and your worth at that particular company, right? So it can be hard to know what value to assign to what you're doing as a professional, But knowing that is really key. And then the other mistake I know I've personally made is not negotiating. So sometimes I think especially as a woman, we're taught to be pleasers. I know I personally am a pleaser. And so I don't ever want to rock the boat. 
and learning to actually negotiate and say, no, that's not enough. This is what I need to move from X company to your company. That's really challenging. And I have only learned that I'm approaching 50 here and I've only learned that in the last couple of years. I definitely undervalued myself and went more with, okay, that's good enough. And uh, took the job without negotiating or advocating for myself. That's been a mistake for me in my career. No, and thanks for sharing that. It's interesting. I, I my very first job salary, I negotiated. I I was about to say, "Here's what I want," and thankfully, I shut up. And then the hiring manager actually offered more than <laughs> I was expecting. So, and Jacqueline, you know, this question, you know, Renee hit on it there. This question of knowing your worth. How have you gone about? Like, you know, you're in data science. How do you actually calculate that these days? Okay, so I'll give you like the the on paper answer of what you're supposed to do, and I'll tell you what I actually do. Um, so on paper, you're supposed to go and look at like, you know, jobs, glass doors or whatever, and trying to get a general understanding of your job and things like that. But that's not really what I do in practice. What I have done realistically is I've been at a job where I've actually talked to someone, I found out what they were making. And it was a lot more than I was making. I'm like, well, if they can make that, I should be able to make that. And I didn't like go and immediately ask for a raise. But it was like, well, the next time I had a job come up, and I was in the interview process, like, well, I knew that that coworker was able to get that for the work that I was basically doing too. So I was going to take a swing at it and that kind of worked. And then, so besides just looking at what other people do, I mean, sometimes it's just kind of a stretch, right? You know, sometimes I'd be like, well, I'm currently making this one. I'm going to swing for the fences and just ask for something a little bit higher than I would have expected and just kind of see if it works out. Um, so I think both of those, just asking for a little extra just to see if I can and using actual humans who are coworkers and who I've talked to as metrics, both of those together, I think have really helped me. Digging in on the data and in theory is nice because things like salary.com or, you know, levels.fyi, they never quite map to your personal situation. Well, so Derry, Gary, sorry, you know, you were, you worked at a quite a large company like Salesforce. You were also a CEO of your own startup. I imagine you saw quite the spectrum in terms of hiring and having to negotiate everything from, uh, you know, where you've got a ton of data internally through to like, hey, you're just trying to figure this out and hire your first employee. How have you approached or what, what kind of mistakes have you seen for people in their negotiations around salary? I alluded a little bit to it in you know, my first initial statement in, in terms of a lot of it is about how you interact with different people. Knowing, for example, that if you have an advocate for you in the company that you work at that is you know, in your management chain, that can often be a, a huge differentiator in terms of whether you get close to being paid what you're worth or not. So that's, that's a big thing. I want to speak a little bit more about my naivety and how I overcame it. I am kind of introverted by nature, and I like the idea of being fixed and set and having like the idea of like a job for life very much appeals to me, you know, and I, I used to work in industrial research labs that had the notion of tenure, you know, you were a research scientist that would get tenure. And, you know, when I got tenure at NEC Research Institute, I thought that was my job for life. And I wasn't really worried about, you know, what the salary was just as long as it was in line. And during that time frame. I started dating a woman who I would then marry and she you know, obviously would become my wife. And she hopped jobs a couple of times. She didn't have a PhD, but she had a master's in computer science and moved around from a couple of different companies of different types. And her salary, you know, in the first six months that we were together 
you know, went up by 50%, whereas mine was stagnant. So, you know, something that the woman I was dating who would then become my wife said to me at that time really stuck out. And that was, unless you're willing to leave a job and investigate and do interviews, you never know really what you're worth. That was an epiphany for me. It was an absolute epiphany because I would never do interviews. I would, I was always kind of content to stay where I was. And the upward trajectory of my own earnings really only occurred when I decided, hey, I have a job that I like, but just for the sake of getting more information, I'm going to take this interview request. I'm going to do an interview and see what comes about. And that right there was introduced like a, a whole new element to this journey, if you will. So it's like, even if you're not serious about moving on, it's still good to practice and see what you're worth. You know, Renee, I, that reminds me of some conversations we've had in our past. Why don't you jump in here? I think maybe you might have something to add to that. That's interesting, Gary. That's uh, one of the approaches I've taken in my own career and Something as I mentor people on looking for jobs and finding jobs is interviewing, I always say, is a skill you have to keep current. And so it's something you should do on a regular basis. And just because you interview doesn't mean you have to take the job if it's offered to you. But it does reinforce exactly what you're talking about, which is helping you determine whether or not um, you're getting paid what you're worth at your current employer. And it can actually be a negotiating tactic for getting a raise at your current employer, if that's something that you're interested in. That's a lever that you can't pull too many times. For example, you know, I was working at a research lab and, and I was happy with my salary, but just for you know, the sake of educating myself, I, I took an interview somewhere that was on the West Coast and I was living on the East Coast at the time. And the salary that they offered me and the stock options and everything were so vastly greater than what I was making. Even though I didn't want the job, I felt compelled to go back to my boss and say, look, I'm not, and this is actually very close to what I actually said. I said, look, I'm not going to leave. I like my job. I like working for you. For a variety of reasons, I took this interview, but they, and they made me an offer at this level. And I'll let you know, I'm going to turn it down. However, I would really appreciate it if you would make it easy for me to turn it down instead of making it difficult. Make it so that I don't have any regrets for staying here. And the boss at that time that I had was very much a mentor of mine. He's an important person in my life. And and he came back and he made me whole. He met their offer and that was a huge level up to my compensation at that point. And so that was a way of, in some ways, A, getting more information and B, in a very nice way, going back to my boss and saying, hey, look, I think my market value is much higher than what I'm getting. And I think it's in both of our interest that you make up the gap. And to his credit, he did. That's great. I had a similar experience and I would absolutely agree with you. It's not a lever you pull very often, but um, on occasion, it can be useful when you, you know, would like to get paid more and you have someone who's willing to pay you more, but you haven't been able to break the typical annual 3% barrier. 
so my sort of heuristic is that you can't do this every year. You can't even, maybe not even every two years. This might be something that you only do if you have some suspicion or evidence that you're really being undercompensated given the state of the marketplace. And that's when you pull the lever. If I have had employees and, you know, kind of back to Grant's question in terms of I've been both a manager and executive and a CEO, I've had employees that would try to pull that lever every year. And that's an employee that I'm going to call their bluff on and say, you know what, I think you should go take the other job. I mean, I personally have done it once in my career. And I don't know that I would do it at every single job or even once every five years, right? It's knowing the right place, the right time, the right organization. I have a slightly different version of this story. Most of the jobs I've stayed in at was two years. So I haven't really had much time to get raises, things like that. But there was one opportunity I had where I was on a team and I was like a director, you know, and I like I had growth. But suddenly my boss left for mysterious reasons. So the company was just like, well, you don't have a boss and kind of moving on. And I realized like, hey, hold on. If my boss isn't here, then that means essentially I'm going to have to do the work for him. And I'm going to have to do the work for him without a title change, without a pay change, with nothing beneficial to me, just now my life got worse. And so I went to my boss's boss and said, listen, even if you don't directly give him me his title, then I will end up doing this work. And so all I'm asking is that on paper, I do have his title. I do have a raise to account for the fact that I am taking on more work. And, you know, you give me more freedom to do what I need to do, because since I'm taking on more responsibility, I need more leverage to do it. And I more or less got what I asked for. It was kind of like, Similar situation, but kind of reverse. Instead of like, oh, I found a better offer out there and pay me more, I'm going to go take that. It was very much a, oh, you don't have a choice but to pay me. So you're going to pay me or I'm going to leave and then you're really in trouble. And like, you could kind of look at that at like a dark, like, oh, wow, you're really harming someone with their vulnerable state light. Or you could look at it the way I choose to, which I think is honestly more accurate, which is they're going to make you do that work anyway. So you deserve the compensation and title or whatever if they're going to make you do work for it. Yeah, I think a lot of companies <laughs> rely on that. Oh, well, they'll just do the work and we don't have to give them a raise, Jacqueline. I appreciate so much. If you are missing live conferences like I am, be sure to check out the new online series of conferences from Manning Publications called Live at Manning. As many of you know, Manning has been a great supporter of the show, offering free books and discounts for our listeners. We've teamed up with them as a media sponsor to spread the word on this new series. These conferences are free to attend, filled with talks from some really great tech experts, and streamed globally via Twitch. No travel needed. Next up in the Live at Manning series is a one-day event focused on women in tech. It is on October 13th, starting at 12 p.m. Eastern. This is your chance to hear from speakers like Cornelia Davis, who you heard here in episode 88, and Emily Robinson, who you heard here in episode 76. Plus, you can learn about topics like algorithmic engineering on large data sets and get the latest on virtual reality. Head over to developmentor.com slash women in tech, all one word, all lowercase, to find out more. In case you didn't catch that, there's going to be a link in your show notes. We'll see you there.
I want to get back to this raise question in a minute here, but I want to focus on a little bit more of this. Hey, we're still jumping ship or we're at least negotiating that first salary. You know, several of you have worked at startups and Gary, I want to pick up on one of the things you said first. And I'll start with you and tell us a little bit more about the stock equity side of comp. You know, I mean, I think Especially, you know, if you're in San Francisco, this is kind of par for the course these days. Everybody's asking about what's your total outstanding options and all these questions. But but for our listeners who perhaps aren't as used to equity negotiation, you know, fill us in a little bit on it real quick, the short version, and talk a little bit more about how do you go about negotiating the equity side of your stock. And of course, Renee and Jacqueline, I'd love to hear your experiences here as well. That's a really great question. It's also extremely complicated and it's hard to kind of distill down into a couple of rules or something. So let me, let me just throw out a couple of simple details. When I did my own startup, I paid everyone the same salary with a couple of different ex- tweaks here and there that were to account for some exceptional circumstances. So everyone made a relatively low salary in my startup. We had one member of the team whose family had some um, healthcare concerns, and it was really important to have continuity of you know their insurance. And so we made sure that we leveled up their insurance so that they would have the coverage that they need in order to, to take the job. But other than that, it was a pretty flat landscape. Know that when you join a startup, you know, there's, there's startups that are pre-funding, that are angel round funding, that are have Series A, Series B, or there might be technology companies that are actually pretty well established but not public, or they might be public. And all those are different animals entirely. Maybe I think if there's one factor that you can use to differentiate one set from the other is if it's a public company, then you do have some sort of independent means of evaluating what the value of the options for the stock awards are. And that's really important. But if it's not a public company, if it's a startup, if it's privately owned, then you either have to know about the last financing round to get something close to a fair market value in order to understand what what those options or, or those shares are actually worth, or you have to make a little bit of a leap of faith and have a little bit of an understanding in terms of how the value of the company is being modeled over time. So for example, in the company that I founded, initially it was just me. Initially for value of the IP, there were some shares that were minted and I owned all the shares initially because I was the founder and the CEO. I then took what is commonly referred to as convertible debt as a form of an angel round investment. And that money was on the order of between one and $2 million. So it was enough to kind of get the company up and off the ground, but no one was gonna get rich or filthy rich from the company just at that stage. And a company that's at that early stage, there are some options at the angel stage that many people aren't aware of. It's actually really easy and relatively safe for founders of a company to award actual stock instead of options to early employees. And so that is one thing that you might want to investigate early on. So if it's if it's like a seed stage 
company where you know they've got a small group of founders they've got maybe a, a stock pool and an option pool that have already been pre-allocated it is very easy for startups to give stock awards as opposed to options and you should ask the question when you get into a conversation about how many options or how many stock shares you're giving you need to know, okay, what is the cap table? How many outstanding shares are there? What is the strike price? All these different details so that you can kind of determine what is the potential upside for what it is that you're being offered. As you get into the later stage companies, like let's say you're working for a non-public unicorn. So it's a non-public company that's north of a billion dollars in valuation and one that everyone hopes and expects to IPO in the next few years. Well, there may not be a fair market value that you can easily calculate for whatever that compensation is. But at the very least, if you have public information about what the last financing round you know, determined in terms of the company's valuation, you can do a little bit of a back-of-the-envelope calculation and, and determine, okay, at that price, what would these stock or options be worth? And the final thing that I'll say is, and this is just to kind of circle back, the reason why at an early company you might want stocks, actual stock instead of options, if that's available to you, is because the nature, the manner in which stock can be issued to early employees is a little bit counterintuitive, but it works in a way where the stock can be issued, you get the benefit of that early date uh, when you started working at the company as the point in time in which you quote unquote took ownership of the stock and you benefit from both the vesting schedule as well as the holding period from a tax liability perspective to ground it out for what this means for my employees. When I gave them stock and then they worked for 18 months for the company, they had already surpassed the capital gain period, holding period for when we were acquired by Salesforce. Whereas if it was an option and they exercise the options, then the moment in time in which they take possession of the resulting shares is real time in that moment in time, as opposed to when their start date was. And so from a tax liability perspective, there's a big difference between stock and options because of that initial date from when you are in some sense taking possession of it. Yeah, that makes sense. And thanks for sharing that, Gary. And of course, for our listeners, we are not tax advisors. Please do <laughs> consult with a certified tax professional. Jacqueline, I'm curious for you, you know, I know you've worked at a few startups. What is the equity process been like for you? How have you approached this question? Because, you know, it's all paper until it's not, right? Yeah. So actually, this is the first startup I've worked at. I worked at some very small consulting firms, but not startups, which is, you know, small consulting firms are in some ways similar, but in some ways different. So I was faced with this problem where, you know, I've had a long career. I've negotiated a lot, but I've never had to deal with stocks before. And this was just a couple months ago. And I very much struggled. And so I went to three different friends of mine who all worked at multiple startups before. And I asked them, how did you handle this problem? How do you think about stocks? And each time I got some different version of nobody knows the math is weird. This probably isn't worth anything anyway, so don't worry about it. I decided basically that when I was thinking about my salary negotiation, I just was not going to consider the stock component. And so I did probably go more heavily on the compensation part, the, the, the salary part than on the stock part. And was that right? 
I don't know. It was just so obtuse. And then it's even like, okay, you're trying to figure out, well, is the company going to be valuable? Who knows? Are you going to be with the company for long enough? Who knows? When it turns out you want to quit to that point, like a stock option, you then have to buy from that. And like, ah, I'm just like, I don't even want to think about this. I'm already stressed enough about trying to decide if this is the right job for me that I'm just not going to consider it as part of my uh, calculations, which I'm not endorsing this as a method, merely sharing it as something that someone else has already done before. You are not alone in that approach. Uh, I know Jacqueline. Uh, <laughs> so there is this tricky calculus, I think, for everybody. You know, Renee, you mentioned earlier that, you know, you, and these were dot-com failures, which, you know, for some of our listeners probably was, uh, you know, they were, I don't know, five or 10 at the time. But yeah, what was your experience, you know, with that side? Because it, it, it did sound like it shaped you as well. It definitely shaped me. I left a decent uh, job at Nordstrom in Seattle. That's where I started my career as a product manager and took a couple of risks. I went to Purchase Pro in Las Vegas, spent six months there, was absolutely miserable and then spent a year in New Jersey at another uh, startup and Purchase Pro actually had already gone public. And so it had a lot of these like newly internet wealthy people that six months after I was there, it had all disappeared because the company uh, went bankrupt and the founding person, Guy, he ended up committing SEC fraud and spent five years in jail, right? And so he took a lot of people down with him. And I think watching some of my friends go through that and see going from being really what they thought on paper wealthy to having almost nothing and no job on top of that really did shape how I looked at jobs and compensation. For me, it was always about I want the money in the bank and I want it now, and I want to be able to make sure that I can provide for my family. The other job in New Jersey, I uh, worked for this startup company. It was an Israeli startup company. Uh, enjoyed it. I learned a lot there as a product manager. And that was right at the time where like the dot-com bust happened. And I got out just in time. Um, I left New Jersey five days before 9-11 happened. But I had a lot of stock options there, but they, they really became worthless to me as I left and the company folded. And then I was left eight months of being unemployed. I, I packed up my car and moved back across country to Seattle at that point in time. And I was living in Seattle when there was just no jobs to be found because they were hit particularly hard by the dot-com bust. And then on top of that, 9-11 happened and it took me like eight months to find a job. And that experience alone of being unemployed, almost running out of unemployment and not knowing where my next paycheck was going to come from really like just changed. I was always about the salary and how can I get the most money for the value that I'm bringing to an organization. I can remember at the time, and it's just so crazy to, to think about that you left five days beforehand. And I, I was in New Jersey at that time, too. My local post office was the post office that they found anthrax in. So I didn't get mail for about four months because of that. Yeah, I guess we're on the 19-year, just past the 19-year anniversary. It's still crazy to to think about all of that, of course. I'm going to rattle off some things off the top of my head, and I would encourage encourage the you know the other panelists to kind of chime in here but i mentioned before a difference between a stock and an option and 
just to kind of be really crisp about this, if you're issued a stock, you own the stock, there still can be a vesting schedule. And that, that vesting schedule might be a period in time in which the company retains the right to buy it back for you at the price that it was issued. But it's yours still. And that has different capital gains implications. Whereas an option is an instrument that allows you to buy the stock at a later date at a prearranged price. And so the value of the option is contingent upon the stock having a future price that's greater than your so-called strike price. Now, those are kind of like the two things that people normally think about, but there's a whole bunch of other details that no one ever really tells you. And so let me try to rattle those off. So first of all, if you're dealing with stock or options and it's a young startup, a company is never going to want to put in writing what percentage of the company that that represents. But you should at at the very least have a verbal conversation where you are syncing up and you have some evidence to believe the verbal conversation for what that actually represents. Is it 0.01% of the equity of the company or is it 0.1 or is it 1%? And it might be any of the above, but those are there's a big difference between those. And the reason why they don't want to put that actual number in terms of what, what it represents in terms of percentage ownage of the ownership of the company is because they're fearful that that would imply a, a commitment to retain that level over time. So they never do that, but you should still be able to get what's called the cap table of the company to figure that out at the very least. So that's one thing. A second thing to be aware of is that if you were issued options, and keep in mind, you may stay with the company and you may not. If you leave the company before you've had a chance to exercise the options, there's a couple of different conditions in these contracts that you need to be aware of. One is, can you keep the options and not exercise them after you leave the company, right? Because if it's a hot, let's say you were working for Twitter pre-IPO and you did your time, you worked four years, but they didn't IPO and now you want to leave, you're burnt out. If you had to leave and leave all your options behind, that's a pretty meaningful event. And so you might want to know what the terms are. Can you take the options with you? Number one. Number two, keeping the options, does that actually require that you exercise them before the company is public? And if that's the requirement, they say, oh, yes, you can keep the options, provided that you exercise them before you leave. That's not a great deal either, because that becomes a taxable event. And again, I'm not a tax accountant, but typically that becomes a taxable event. And you have to lay out money in advance in order to to take possession of that equity. And so the best conditions that you'll get, and so I, I come across this a lot because I advise a lot of startups now, but basically the conditions that I want in my position is I want the options, and when my gig for advising the company is over, what I want is I want something on the order of many years after the engagement to be able to exercise the options later on. So there will be a time window in which the options are exercisable after your real formal relationship with the company ends. And some companies will say that length of time is zero. And other companies, I've seen, while this isn't always common right now, other companies go as long as seven years. And that's obviously what you want. Because 
in that seven year gap, the company might IPO. And then you know what it's worth and you can make the thoughtful choice to exercise the options. But if it tanks, then, you know, you never put out the money, no harm, no foul. And those are kind of like the big things. The final thing that I might throw out is vesting schedules, know what a cliff is. Typically, there's a 12-month cliff. That means that if you part ways with the company within the first 12 months, you get nothing. And so having an understanding of how vesting works and how it builds up over time, just look it up and make sure you understand what it is that you're being offered. Yeah, that's fantastic, Gary. And, uh, you know, what we'll do here is do a little, I know I've got some links that I've used over time to help me understand this. So just I think in the interest of moving along, we'll link up some resources for our listeners here. And I want to continue on here. And, you know, Renee, we, we talked a little bit earlier about getting a raise. Jacqueline mentioned this, Gary mentioned this, you mentioned this. The standard mantra is if you want to raise, you got to leave your company. But I'm curious, you know, what your experience has been and or what you would advise people who want to actually stay and negotiate a raise. You know, we talked a little bit. There's the nuclear option of, hey, you know, boss, I'm leaving or unless you match. I'm curious what other approaches you've found effective other than the standard just, oh, well, I get my standard of living raise. One of the things, I haven't done this actually for myself, but I do it for my employees on their behalf because I have some very talented people on my team. And I also understand the value that they bring to the organization I currently work for. So one of the things I've done, and I currently work for a CFO of, of a company, and he's all about numbers, right? And I actually have put together business cases that show uh, the value that they bring to the organization, their value in the marketplace, open job recs in the marketplace that they could easily go get with the salaries available. And then I've advocated on their behalf to say, this is why we need to bump up their salary. They are absolutely being underpaid. I think in some ways you could do that for yourself as well. Do your own research, find out what you're worth. You don't have to go interview get a job to do that, you can see what you're worth and then lay out in detail the value that you've given to the organization. Typically, I think you have to be performing really well in order to make that case. If you're just sliding by doing average work, don't expect that you're going to get a raise just because you put together a business case. That's the other thing is you have to be demonstrating value at the organization for anybody to be able to want to give you that raise. Yeah, for sure. Well, now, Jacqueline, how about you? What kind of success or failures? I failure is probably not the right word, but I'll use it anyways. At at negotiating a raise, have you done that in line where you went to your boss? Well, you you made the one case where your boss actually left. I'm curious what other experiences you've had. So besides that time, I really haven't negotiated for a raise. So I've never like gone to my boss or whatever and be like, I believe I deserve to be paid more in a time. You know, I've never just had that conversation. What I have done is I have really planned where like, you know, I know a performance review is coming up three months from now. And so I will lay the seeds and I'd be like, hey, you know, performance review is coming up. I feel like I've been doing really well. I would like to know what it's left for me. Like what what would I need to do to get a promotion? Because I feel like I'm ready. And I assume with that, you know, would come a compensation change too. And, you know, have that conversation. So it's not like me saying, hey, I would like a raise now, please. But it is trying to be strategic and knowing, hey, I'm going to try and do the groundwork. So in two to three months, when all the bosses get together and decide who gets more money, they will have thought about me and know that that's something I am very much expecting and feel like I'm ready for. 
And I think that's had, you know, a decent amount of success where by being very clear, they're like, hey, I'm expecting to, you know, get some compensation growth, some meaningful compensation growth in the future, because I feel like I've been doing better. When it comes time for them to give me my performance review, it's generally been, yeah, you're right. You know, we, we've seen what you've done. We've been impressed, blah, blah, blah. Here is more money. And to me, that feels a lot more in line with kind of the business cycle than just suddenly like walking to your office of your boss and be like, I would like more money now, please. And that's not that that is wrong or you have to follow this policy, but it seemed to me from being in organizations, it's a lot easier to convince a company to give you money during the phase of which they're all giving around money than just, hey, right now, today, today's the day I want more money. There are special occasions and situations, and maybe I'm wrong, but it's just always felt more straightforward to me to kind of follow the more standard process in these things. Yeah, that's fantastic. I I like the, the laying the seeds idea. Let's continue on because I think, you know, we've negotiated our salary, we've asked for raise, and then now there's this proverbial question of should I stay or should I go? And, you know, starting with you, Jacqueline, let's talk a little bit about leaving and counter offers. And first, I'm curious, have you ever actually accepted one that and did it work out? And second, and perhaps more broadly, how do you approach this question? I know you just went through this in many ways of should I stay or should I go and counter offers? And I suppose for you, you were doing consulting, but anyways. <laughs> you know, I've never actually gotten a counter offer. I've gotten the kind of hint of like, oh, we would give you a counter offer if you want one. But whenever I've quit, I've always been at the point of like, no, I know I don't want to work here anymore. And I'm letting you know that. It would be weird. I'm like, I don't want to work here anymore. I have a new job. And they're like, oh, we could pay you more. And like, It's never been that way for me. It's always been, hey, I've already made up my mind and I'm ready to move on. Whether it's like, here's my two weeks notice or you can't fire me, I quit kind of walking out dramatically, which has happened once. But I've never been in a counter offer phase. And I kind of like that, honestly. To me, it feels strange where you're like, well, I don't super like this job. I feel like I'm underpaid. I think there's a new job I like, but I'm willing to stay around for more money. Like that just feels like, do you want to stay? Then if so, maybe... You could have asked for more money without the counter offer. And if you want to leave, like, what is the counter offer really that good that suddenly that new exciting job isn't new anymore and exciting? Like, I don't know. Maybe this is the truth for other people. But for me, this whole notion of a counter offer just really hasn't played into my life very much. Renee or Gary, have either of you actually in your manager roles made a counter offer or have been on the receiving end of counter offer? I've been on the receiving end. I did take a counter offer once, like uh, we talked about earlier. I was on the fence about leaving. I had interviewed for a job at actually what I had considered my dream job, but it meant a move from Minnesota to Orlando, Florida. I just, as I researched what it would like to be live, living in Orlando and raising kids in Orlando, and I just went to my boss and said, you know, look, they're offering me 40% more than what I'm making now. My boss actually just kind of threw up her hands and it was another woman that I was working with who said, well, I like a good challenge. I'm going to see if we can get you something better. And she did actually, not even my boss went out and advocated for me and got me not a 40% raise, but a 15% raise. And I ended up staying. That was mostly because that was what was right for our family at that point in time. And I did end up leaving a year ago. I will also say, Grant, that there's a piece of advice our dad actually gave me a long time ago, and but I've always taken it to heart. And he always said, Renee, when they will come at you with counter offers, and you should never take them because, for one, if a company can't value you while you're there, 
then they're not going to value you if you stay. Second of all, it shouldn't take you having to leave for a company to value you. So always go. There's a reason you're leaving. And that reason doesn't change. Like it's not magically going to get better if that's the reason that you're leaving, just because they counter offer you the same problems exist. And so go out there and see, see what's available, try something new. So that's the approach I've typically taken. Okay. So I'm super curious. First off, that's a great story about taking a counteroffer. So that goes to my earlier point of like, I don't know when you, that was a good circumstance when a counteroffer is right. But once you got that counteroffer, was there like this, well, she could leave at any moment now that like, oh, we have her for net. Like, was there like a weird air over you or was it like totally chill? It's kind of the way I operate, Jacqueline. I always have this, well, I could go get something else anytime. So I've just always been in the situation where like, again, you have to show that you're providing value to the company, but I come in, I do my thing and they're like, oh my God, you can't ever leave us. And I was like, well, actually I can. And I just kind of always instill that fear, I guess, in my bosses. I think that's kind of, you need that to like negotiate well, like that attitude is like a core part of all of this. Like you can't, you can't get a good compensation if you're like, oh, thank goodness you gave me any offer at all. I agree in broad strokes with a lot of what's been said, but there's some details that I disagree with. And and I'll preface this by saying that I have been given counter offers that I've accepted. And I, you know, I started off this, this session describing, you know, one of the earliest times that that happened in my career. I've also extended counter offers to others. And I'm pretty sure that almost, you know, the vast majority of the counter offers that I've extended to people have been accepted and worked out and was happy that uh, everything worked out. Now, why is it that smart, rational people might have a different perspective on this? I have a theory about this, and it breaks down into two pieces. One, there's a very different dynamic that you'll find in different companies depending on the sector and depending on the size of the company. And what those differences are boil down to the following trait. Are you in a role at a stage of your career in an industry and the sort of company where there is a great de- degree, for lack of a better way of putting it, of fungibility between different people in your role. In other words, are you very replaceable? Are you a cog in the machine? That's not a nice way of framing it, ad- admittedly, but I, I, I'm just trying to come up with like a clear, crisp image for what it is that I'm talking about. Or moving into the continuum, Are you in a very hyper-competitive environment, perhaps part of a big company that makes lots of money, and also is the hyper-competitive nature of the industry and the field that you're in such that there are very few people, perhaps even in the world, that do what you do, and therefore there's more leverage on in your situation in terms of what you can try to get and what you can try to give. And so what I'm trying to call out is that number one, how you negotiate a salary and compensation issue depends entirely on where you are on that continuum. Are you a cog in the machine or are you a one of a kind type of hire? And of course, most of us are somewhere in between. But knowing where you are on that continuum actually impacts the nature of the negotiation and and what you can expect. The second thing is, is, and I've alluded to this before already, but as you move upward in your career to where you're in much more rarefied air in the sense that 
There's a smaller number of companies that you might want to consider working for. There's a smaller number of roles because you've kind of grown and you're looking for something more senior. And maybe even you've grown in expertise and have a set of skills that are rarer than they were years ago and should therefore, if they're marketable, should should be compensated for. Well, as you move into that domain, into that era of being um, more specialized and more rare, the personal relationships that you have with people become much more important than the companies in some sense. And, and so let's be really blunt here. Companies have no souls. They have no values. They have no emotions. They don't care about you. Companies are inanimate objects. Companies are machines. And while there might be some anthropomorphization that we do of a company, especially small ones, we we tend to imbue a, a small company with the personality of its founders, big companies have none of that. And so as the saying goes, it's business, right? If you find out that someone on your team is grossly undercompensated, then it's within your own interest to try to right size things. However, if you're really Machiavellian and maybe even borderline sociopathic about these sort of things, you might decide, hey, if Joe Blow isn't making what Joe Blow is worth in the market and Joe Blow doesn't know it, then that's Joe Blow's loss. That's a really kind of ugly way of putting it. But I think that that happens more often than one might realize, that in large companies, especially those that have, you know, like a Microsoft employees, like on the order of like 100,000, you know, developers, right? Of course, there's going to be inconsistencies in their compensations. Because at that scale, there is no perfect way of being consistent. And so the variance that might exist in, say, uh, the context of a large company is something that you need to investigate and no one is actually going to look out for you typically unless they are someone that you have a personal relationship with that they've invested some element of their career in you being successful in your career. That's the kind of thing that I think the relationship that you need in order to have someone who's going to be a compensation advocate for you. So many interesting points in here, and I, I do want to move on. And thanks to everybody for sharing that. I'll, I'm going to break the fourth wall and add one little tiny bit because I actually left, took another job, gone three months, and then came back. And as I was doing the coming back part, neighbor and friend of mine who had been an executive at a pretty large uh, credit processing company said to me, Grant, like it's not a good thing to just go back to the same role, right? So in other words, don't accept a counteroffer unless you're guaranteed or you're highly certain to the level you can be that something's going to be different, right? So, you know, you're leaving for good reasons, stay for good reasons, and they can't be just, oh, well, hey, here's more money. And so as part of that advice, one of the things is I actually negotiated a role change as well as a salary change and, you know, obviously different responsibilities and all the things that with, went with it. But I love this, you know, and for our listeners here, we've got four different people, all with four different experiences on leaving and counter offers. I want to then kind of bring this main line of questions to a close. And I know we this is such a good and rich discussion on compensation. So I'm going to ask each of my panelists for this. I almost think of it as the lightning round here. And 
Jacqueline, you you hit on this right off the top, so it's it's top of mind. But you know, this question of pay equity, glass ceiling, salary transparency. There's a lot of talk going on around the, this. There's I, I think a pretty well standing Twitter hashtag called hashtag salary transparency. And you know, tech companies are gaining a lot of leverage in their markets through automation and software and you know, yet we as employees, we often don't talk about money, you know, and Jacqueline, you mentioned you actually did. So I think I know your answer here, but I'm going to ask each of my panelists, rapid fire, sharing salary information with your colleagues, good or bad, and why, and please keep the why to at most a few sentences. Jacqueline, starting with you, good or bad, and why? I think it's great. And it's keeping salary secrets benefits no one's but your employers. So more knowledge means more people can get paid fairly. Renee, what about you? I think it's good. Why? Just as a woman in tech, I think we often are undervalued. And so understanding how other people are valued can help you negotiate or advocate for yourself. And Gary, what about you? So I agree with um, everything that's been said, especially what Jacqueline said. I'll also add that you can and should compare salaries with your coworkers, and you have no obligation to disclose to your employer that you've done that due diligence. Yeah, that's fantastic. And of course, uh, employers, well, at least in the United States, they cannot prevent you from sharing your salaries. That, that's another interesting legal point. Some big companies especially will try to pressure you into not talking about your salary. All right. Well, that's fantastic. I think that wraps up the topics here for the panel, but I want to spend a little bit of time on a couple of questions. We have started this new approach on the podcast and the website about trying to answer questions of our listeners and the general audience on careers and technology. And of course, since in full disclosure, this is our first episode doing this, we are still collecting some listener questions. So I've taken a little liberty here and I hope uh, everybody will forgive me, but you know, please do send in your questions. I know there are a lot of people out there who have a lot of career questions because I hear from them uh, uh, in my own travels. I see them at my work. I see them in some forums that I followed. And so please do send them in, but I want to pull them in and, and get some thoughts from our panelists here on how to build a better career in technology. And so I want to start off. This is a, a question I came across on Reddit's, uh, I believe it's r slash CS career questions. And I don't make the names up here, folks, so just go with this. But the user Pillow Mallow asks, I'm currently happy with the company I work with, but recently due to the pandemic, some of us are asked not to work for a while and not get payment as well. Part of me thinks that the company is just having some challenges, so they need to use resources well. But part of me thinks they will not survive this crisis and are just waiting for some people to resign. I'm seriously hoping we can survive it, but I'm a little worried. Anyone experienced staying in a dying company and what signs did you notice before it all collapsed? Renee, this one feels right up your alley. You want to start off with this and then we'll go to Gary and Jacqueline. Well, I have lived through that. I was fortunate to get out before both of the companies I worked for collapsed. But I think there are telltale signs. One you can see, are there just continually layoffs after layoffs after layoffs? Do you continually not make your numbers and really no good 
um, explanation of how your the company is going to turn itself around. Typically, you'll see leadership leaving. All of those are telltale signs. Like that's a time where you need to be looking out for yourself and going to find meaningful work elsewhere. And it's often better to get out before everything collapses because if the company does collapse, you know, you're not likely to get severance. You're not likely to have any kind of uh, your stock options or anything like that be worth anything at that point, especially in this day and age during a pandemic, it can be very difficult and challenging to find a job. So the sooner you start, the better is what I would say. Now, Jacqueline, for you, I mean, I'm going to actually rephrase this one a little bit because, you know, you you just actually left your own consulting company after two years and to go back to the W-2 life. And so that's kind of a slight variant. But, you know, how did you go about deciding that it was time to go back? That's a great question. I started to kind of get burnt out after two years, right? Because like, People like to like the idea of consulting because it's like, oh, you get to do your own thing, be your own boss. But it also means you have to find your own work, which means you have to like network and make sales and do all this stuff. And I really just want to do more data science than that. And I found the point of, okay, now I need to find new contracts, generally stressful. And then a pandemic hit. I mean, this is in March. And like, so I'd already been like, well, I'm not sure which contracts I'm going to have for the next month. It might be a little bit tricky. And then things started shutting down. And I'm like, okay, this looks like it's going to be a, you know, like, consultants are the fierce people let go. And so the the odds of me finding contracts and like seemed extraordinarily low. So I very quickly started looking for a job. So it's a little bit similar to this pseudo caller saying, hey, I'm seeing a little bit of the writing on the wall. And I really I tend to act quickly because, you know, I really fear the situation of not having a job and not being able to find a job. So I tend to act quickly. And I think that's worked well for me. I think staying around even when things seem to be going south generally is a risky proposition. Gary, what about what about you? What are your thoughts on this? I know you've worked at several big companies. You've probably been through some of these downsizings or perhaps been on the other side of them. Uh, what are your thoughts on this one? Yeah, so I have horror stories that I could relay on this front. You know, I was working at Microsoft at, um, in 2008. You know, I was given five days notice to, you know, figure out how I was going to lay off 90 people. That was one of the worst experiences of my professional career. And it could have been much worse. And for anyone that did get laid off, it was obviously worse for them. In those circumstances, I was able to take that budget cut that would have required me to lay off 90 people and turn it into five people or seven people actually is what it was. So I was able to save 83 people. But it's a reminder that again, kind of like what I said before, Companies aren't people and you shouldn't anthropomorphize them because when you do it, you end up getting burnt a little bit. And I have very complicated feelings about a lot of this because on the one hand, I like the idea of having a job for life. I really do believe that, you know, the best jobs I ever had weren't jobs. They were a mission. You know, I was on a mission to do something and it wasn't about the money. It was about what it was I was doing. And so to be expendable and to be on both sides of that is shock. So to what the pseudo caller or fictional caller asked, you know, I'll go back to basics on this one. Number one, everyone, regardless of the circumstances that you're in, you you should try to be building out a nest egg of 
being able to live without your job for six months, if at all possible. That's going to be a stretch goal for a lot of people. That might be something that it takes years to build that kind of nest egg. You only get to having that nest egg of, of six months of, of buffer by taking the first step and actually socking away some money. So I've always had the mindset that number one, I, I, that's always important. I've always, I've always done that. Number two, if a company is furloughing you, and that's the, the technical term for what's happened to this person, then by every sane way of framing this, you ought to be looking for another job. It might be that the company that you're working for is you've anthropomorphized it and that you like your boss, you like the founder, maybe you like the owners, maybe they're family to you. But if you need a salary and they've put your salary on hold, then you need to actually start expanding your options. And if you're not expanding your options and looking out for what you could be doing to make a salary during that time, you're doing yourself a disservice. And so I think, unfortunately, a lot of people might frame this in their own head as like an issue of like company loyalty. You know, it's good to have company loyalty. And if they can write the ship and make things work out, great, continue working in that role. But don't sacrifice yourself and don't become a martyr, I think is the moral of the story here. Everyone's a mercenary out there. And this is why I was emphasizing the whole thing with relationships. Now, I have a mercenary sort of attitude when it comes to interacting with companies. However, there are dozens of people that I've been interacting with for decades. Some people have picked up and moved around the world to come work with me. And I have moved mountains to work with them. And these are, and this has happened in many companies over multiple decades. And, and if you can build out relationships over the course of your career, where it's the people that kind of transcend the companies and the companies are secondary, that's where you want to be, I think. Right. And you can have loyalty to people and integrity to people, but don't anthropomorphize companies. I'm going to pull the moderator card here. This is fantastic. I so agree. I'm going to add one little wrinkle. Depending on this person's, you know, to Gary's point, their financial position, it could actually be an opportunity. And the opportunity is to go and say, hey, boss, I'm happy to stay. I love what we're doing. I'm committed to our mission. I can live without a paycheck for the moment, but what I want is more equity. And so if you are in a position to do that, you can actually show your loyalty, which in theory could be rewarded when they come out of it and grow your upside by getting the equity side of it. I know there's been a few companies, I've seen some examples, and I, I know some friends who have done exactly that in the moment, and it paid off handsomely later on. Of course, that assumes there's an exit later, but there is that side of it, especially if you're in a position of strength when you're, when you're going into that. Let's move on then to the next question. This is uh, yet another fictional caller from this same forum, New Coder 250. And I love this question because there's so many loaded things in it. It says, I don't really care about Fang. So for our listeners, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, or Google, or large titles or any of that stuff. I just want a regular job that pays decently. I just want to afford a house and live normally. How difficult is this? It seems nowadays you need four plus years worth of experience to just do a regular front end job and you need to leak code 24 seven. 
for our listeners who aren't familiar with Leak Code, it's a programming platform where you practice your interview tests. I don't want to do the whole Leak Code arms race. I just want a regular life. And I'm just going to jump in here. There's a lot in this one. And first off, there's some pretty big assumptions in the questions, like the one that you can't have a regular life at Fang and a fair bit of binary thinking. But let's dig in here. Jacqueline, how does a new coder go about creating a quote unquote regular life as if there is such a thing? Okay. So I'm going to talk from my experience as a data scientist, which is slightly different than a software engineer. But I think there's a lot of selection bias in this question because you pick these from Reddit and people on Reddit get all worked up about like, there's something about Reddit and the data science area and machine learning, especially where it's like, it's just there. All they talk about are the biggest models and what, what is Google doing in this new paper and all. And like, that is totally unrealistic expectation of what a data scientist jobs actually like. I think most data scientists probably don't work in tech. Even the ones who work in tech probably don't work at a fang. Like the focus on these hyper aggressive, competitive, super big companies, latest tech is misconstrued most of what's going on, which is to say you want a regular life, very doable. Don't go work at Google, you know, go work at insurance company 27. Go be the data scientist that helps with their user experience research, right? Like there are so many jobs out there that are not these hyper competitive high raises. And so it's like, what you need to do is just stop trying to compete with the best of the best and go find a nice software engineering job in Milwaukee, in St. Louis. Like they're out there, they're fine. People are happy and like, just don't get caught up in this game. Yeah, I love that. Gary, what about you? You know, you've worked across some quote unquote regular jobs, as it were, you know, and and also some unregular ones, if that's the word. What's new coder missing here? This is a really tough one because in full disclosure, I checked out of the game uh, during the peak of my earning power because I could. And to rebalance the work-life balance equation for myself so that I could be a full-time father, a full-time husband, and pursue the projects that I had the most passion about. So I kind of voted to go in one direction. At the same time, I'm very conflicted about this question because I know that, for example, both Facebook and Amazon just leased massive quantities of space in downtown Bellevue where I live. And I know that that's going to put a crunch on the, on the housing market here. And I know that an empty lot in my neighborhood can still sell for close to $2 million. That's with no house on it at all, right? And so, yes, it's possible, you know, to choose that you want to be a little bit more skewed towards life on the work-life balance side of things. But if you want to live in a geographical region that is the home to fangs and similar then I think you might actually have to get on the treadmill or the circular wheel for a while so that you don't get priced out. And going back to making reference to one of the things that Jacqueline mentioned, you know, I know that the difference, some of the variation in compensation packages for fairly recent grads in data science ranges from the low six figures to the low seven figures. I mean, there's there's like an order of magnitude difference in terms of what, what time what people are getting. I don't know that I would automatically say that the right path 
you know, is just to choose life and balance and skew that way and go and get the job in Milwaukee. If you want to live in Seattle, you know, in the Seattle area, you know, you can easily get priced out if you're not keeping up with the other economic indicators in this region. Well, and, you know, and the crazy thing, I know plenty of people who, for instance, who work at some of these companies and they work the nine to five, they have a regular job. But, you know, Renee, stepping back, what advice would you give this person about thinking about the bigger arc of their career? Because it feels very, you know, I think Gary's hitting at this as well, but like it feels very narrowly defined, which to Jacqueline's point is often the case on Reddit anyways. But what advice would you give more broadly? Yeah, as I was thinking about this, you know, he talks often about having a regular life. First of all, I have to put a plug in for Minneapolis, Minnesota, because we have a lot of Fortune 500 companies. You can get a good tech career here and have a regular life and not be living in the housing prices of Seattle, which is why I moved to Minneapolis. But that being said, I think you also have to to get kind of what Gary was uh, talking about. You have to be careful of complacency, right? And if you want a long arc of a career, I have just found that you have to be able to understand and assert your value, not only at your current company, but in the marketplace. And when things like a pandemic come along and you find yourself furloughed or without a job, it's those skills and that experience and the people that you know that's going to get you out of the unemployment line and back into a job, right? So those are the things that you have to be thinking about long-term instead of the short-term of, I just want a regular life. So what skills do you need for the long haul, right? It's not just today or five years from now, 10 years from now, what skills are you going to need to make sure when, God forbid, another pandemic comes along and we're all finding ourselves having a hard time finding a job, how are you different from other people in the marketplace? And I'd say for me and my career, that's the one thing that I learned when I found myself unemployed back in 2000, 2001, was nothing made me different than anybody else. And so from that point on, I just sought to, to be different, to make myself stand out amongst all the plethora of other candidates. And that's what you have to think about a regular life. You can have that, but you also have to be growing your career and growing your skills and thinking five, 10 years ahead in the future about what you're going to need should something like that happen. I love that, Renee, and for all of you, such good advice. I'll add in one other thing, which is, you know, this show, of course, is about careers, but careers are, you know, 40, 50, 60 hours a week kind of thing. And there's a whole lot more hours in the week than the time you spend at your job. And part of having a regular life is actually developing a life outside of work. You are not your job and your job is not you. It is okay to have hobbies. It's okay to shut off your computer and your phone in the evening and go for a run or go do whatever it is you like. So part of developing a regular life is to actually pursue other interests while still pursuing your career. You can do both. There are, is plenty of time in the week. I would bet for most people, they spend a lot of time is wasted 
and they could be developing that quote unquote regular life in that spare time. All right, bringing this in, last question for this episode. And I know this one is not from Reddit and it is in fact from a friend who shall remain nameless. But a few weeks ago, this person actually called me up for some career advice. I'm gonna paraphrase it here. The friend works at a pretty big company as an engineer. Uh, like Gary talked about earlier, this person is highly specialized. They are in fact an expert in their field and the company highly values that. So this person's well compensated too, but they are being recruited for a much smaller, albeit still public company for, and this is where it really gets interesting for a much more general role, still in software, but not as built on those skills. You might think of this role as an assistant CTO, like uh, they're in the office of the CTO. They're, they're working across a large part of the products. They're not managing people, but they're guiding, they're shaping the technical questions. The comps all the same. And this person is struggling with the classic question of should I stay or should I go? And the interesting tidbit here is one is building your career path versus one is, you know, really just honing a career path. And I'm curious, you know, Jacqueline, let's start off with you. How would you approach this question of getting out of your comfort zone, perhaps doing something you're, you're not as specialized in such that, you know, five years from now, you are now a much deeper and broader expert in a field? So I didn't have this exact situation in my life, but I did have one point where I could go as a consultant for many years. I could get a new job as a consultant, or I could switch to an industry that I thought was endlessly fascinating, um, but I'd never worked in before to do data science there. Um, kind of like a dream job. And in that situation, I took the job that was the more interesting kind of stepping out of side of my standard career growth path. And it was terrible. And I didn't like the job at all. And nothing that not about switching jobs specifically, it just so happened that, that job was unusually bad. But I didn't look back on it and be like, wow, that was really a mistake to kind of try something new. It's just like, well, sometimes things don't work out. And then I switched to a different job. So I guess my lifestyle here has always been choose the more interesting one and then kind of just see where life goes. But I'm more of a, I like trying interesting things, but not everyone wants to take that risk and try stuff out. And so my advice would be, I guess, there's no right answer. Do what you want. I like doing the interesting thing. And if it doesn't work out, you know, life continually changes and maybe you will get another opportunity in the future. So maybe leaning a little bit more to the new role because new is often, you know, at least there's that learning curve aspect if I'm hearing you right, Jacqueline. Yeah, I think I've learned the most by trying out new things. Yeah, I love that. Gary, what about you? I think I, I can see both sides to this as well. And, and like I've already said over the course of this session, I've at different points in my career, I, I wanted to be doing one thing. I wanted to have a job for life. I wanted to have a mission and, and just stay focused on that. And so there's a lot of things personally that pull me in that direction. But the truth is, every major milestone that has occurred in my career has happened because I made a little bit of a leap. You know, the way to be thoughtful about this is to consider the fact that earlier in your career, it's appropriate and easier to take on a little bit more risk than it is later in your career. You should be trying out, you know, different things and, and experimenting. 
And just like, you know, we date when we're younger before we get married. And, you know, and as you become a little bit more settled on a, on a more, you know, fixed path, every now and then it's also a little bit rewarding to try to reinvent yourself subject to the constraints that you don't implode your own career. I'm a big fan, actually, of trying new things when the opportunity arises. And I think the role in this particular question that's being described sounds like an amazing role. And the sort of thing that a lot of people would kill to take a stab at, you know, and roles like that being kind of, you know, kind of like the right hand of a CTO or something like that, that's never meant to be a permanent job. That's always meant to be a stepping stone for other things. And it's one of those few roles where you get the opportunity to really sample across a whole company, a whole industry, or or look at a multitude of complex issues without necessarily being at risk for being um, overwhelmed by it because there's training wheels that come with it. So, you know, if the money's okay and everything else is fine and the people don't suck and you know, there aren't other factors that we don't know about, like a bet like that can be tremendously rewarding. Renee, last thoughts, and then we'll go into our close. I think they should go for it. Yeah. <laughs> so succinct. <laughs> I love that. All right. Well, let's wrap all of this up. Our very first Careers in Tech panel. Big thank you to Jacqueline, Gary, and Renee for joining me. I very much appreciate you taking the time out of your day. Before we leave, for each of you, Jacqueline, where can our listeners best find you, buy your book, engage with? I believe you have a new podcast. Give us all the details on what you've got going on. Yes, you can follow me on Twitter at Sky Tetra. That's S-K-Y-E-T-E-T-R-A. That's where I do most of my talking. Or you can buy the book that me and Emily Robinson wrote, and that is uh, Build a Career in Data Science. You can get it at bestbook.cool. That's the URL. And Emily and I also just last week launched a podcast where we talk about each chapter of the book and about career stuff for data scientists, and that's podcast.bestbook.cool. All right. Bestbook.cool. That, that easily wins the best URL award for a book on the market. So I, I love that. We'll link that up. Gary, what about you? I know you're, you know, you shared with us in your episodes, you've, you've got this fun project on programming languages. You're writing a follow up to your masterpiece book. What's going on in your life and, and how can our listeners engage with you? Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm still a misanthrope. I spend most of my time trying to be as invisible as possible on the web. But, you know, I do things like this and therefore fail miserably at, a, at that goal. I'm still chugging away on my next book. It's going well, about halfway done. And, you know, it's so difficult to write during all the think crazy things going on in the world right now. And I'm still working on XTC, the programming language compiler runtime that I've been designing for a couple of years and it's going well. And I, you know, to be perfectly honest, I'm going to get them done when they're done and I won't release them before then because I can't. So we'll see. I don't know. I'm not going to set any, any dates, but I'm still working on it. Fantastic. And Renee, bring us on in here. Where can people best connect with you? And what's coming up next on the Manager Mentor blog? Well, Grant, you can best connect with me on the Developmentor platform or on Twitter. I'm at Renee St. Louis or LinkedIn. And the Manager Mentor blog, we did a soft launch of that last week, actually. And what we're going to be tackling is similar to the second half of this panel, which is taking uh, reader questions, 
particularly on how to manage and how to manage well in IT uh, and how to manage a, a team of IT professionals to get the most from that. And that will be in every two-week series. So uh, we did a soft launch last week, and then we're going to cover some fundamentals, and then we'll start taking reader questions. So more to come. Yeah, fantastic. And for our listeners, we'll link up all of those, everything from bestbook.cool to uh, pointers at Gary so that you can uh, be sure to at least know when Gary considers the book in the programming language to do be done. And of course, you know, the shameless self plug for Developmentor and this new blog series we're launching there. So thank you again to our panelists and thank you to our listeners for joining us today. Thanks, Grant. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the Developmentor podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Even better, please leave us a review. If you want to hear older episodes, leave feedback, or sign up to be a guest, please visit us at developmentor.com. If you'd like to support the show, there are three ways you can help out. One, make a donation via Patreon. Two, if you're a software engineer looking for your next gig and wanting to practice interviewing, use our referral link to the interviewing.io platform. And three, buy your next tech book from Manning Publications using our affiliate link. All of those links can be found at developmentor.com slash support dash us. That's S-U-P-P-O-R-T dash U-S, all one word. Most importantly, if you like this show, please tell your friends. Referrals are the lifeblood of any podcast. Finally, we here at Developmentor hope that each and every episode helps you move one step closer.